KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Since late March, people who lost their jobs due to the pandemic have been getting an extra $600 a month in unemployment benefits from the federal government. But that's ending this week. San Diego Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez says if Congress doesn't extend the extra benefit, state lawmakers are looking at supplementing the amount. She says to do nothing would lead to catastrophe. We're going to end up with a huge housing crisis, um, a mortgage crisis, as well as a renter's eviction crisis. We're going to end up with people basically starving to death. I mean, it's not tenable. Congress must decide what to do by the end of August. A proposal for affordable housing at a South Bay trolley station is getting bigger. For the past year, the Metropolitan Transit System has been in talks with a team of developers about what to build on the nearly four-acre parking lot at the Palm Avenue trolley stop. The initial plan was for 250 low- and moderate-income apartments, but a new plan presented on Thursday had more than 400 homes. City Council member Vivian Moreno, who represents the area, says she uses the parking lot when she rides the trolley. And I agree there isn't uh, a lot of uh, people parking in this area. So I think we all could agree that the highest and best use of land right next to a trolley stop is not a four acre parking lot, right? And San Diego City Council President Georgette Gomez told fellow MTS board members Thursday the agency needs to maximize the use of its real estate. Utilizing the spaces uh, a bit more that would really provide an opportunity to address the housing crisis. So this is very exciting to me. The project would also include a playground for residents and on-site childcare. MTS and the development team hope to strike a deal on the project by February of next year. San Diego's only hair cutter for children with autism and other special needs announced that she'll be joining a lawsuit that seeks to overturn the governor's orders that salons must do their work outside. Amy Mullins Boychuk is the owner of Therapy Hair Salon. She says if she followed the orders, she'd be in a parking lot near traffic. She says it would threaten the safety and well-being of her clients. Everything has been stripped from them. Um, they're losing services. The schools are not able to provide the things that they need. Um, and this is also a social outlet for them. It's safety here. There's four walls and a door. They don't have to worry about running into a parking lot and getting hit by a car just to get a haircut. She serves about 20 clients per day and one client at a time. She says that so far the guidelines imposed on salons have caused her to lose $25,000. One Marine is dead, two are injured, and eight others are missing after an amphibious assault vehicle accident off of the coast of Southern California, as reported by the Associated Press. The accident happened Thursday, and search and rescue efforts are underway this morning with support from the Navy and Coast Guard. All of the Marines involved were assigned to the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit. I'm Annika Colbert, filling in for Kinsey Moreland. It's Friday, July 31st. This is San Diego News Matters from KPBS News. Stay with me for more of the local news you need.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. For more than two weeks, San Diego County has failed to meet its goal for contact tracing cases of COVID-19. That goal was to start investigations of new cases within 24 hours. This means that people who have had close contacts with others who test positive are not being alerted quickly and are not being told to quarantine. But the county is working on putting more people on the job. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser has more on our story. The county set a goal that 70% of new case investigations would begin within 24 hours. Currently, just 11% of case investigations meet that goal. Part of the reason is likely because the county does not have enough case investigators. Case investigators are the people who call and question a person who has tested positive for COVID-19. There's a real art to it because you want you're, you're catching people in a really vulnerable moment, right? Like that's a, not a great phone call. Rebecca Fielding-Miller is an epidemiologist at UC San Diego. Um, and so you want people who are really um, empathetic and ideally multilingual and culturally competent and who can really kind of sit with people in a moment of discomfort and both provide them with resources, make it very clear that they need to self-quarantine and get this information out of them. So it's, um, it's tricky. Here's how the process works. Case investigators make a long phone call to find out who's been in contact with the infected person. Then they pass that information on to a contact tracer who calls all of the contacts of the infected person. So case investigators have to kick off the work the contact tracers do, and the county needs more of them. San Diego County currently has 270 case investigators and 232 contact tracers and is in the process of hiring and training 253 more. Fielding Miller says the county missed an opportunity to better contain COVID-19 by not hiring more case investigators earlier on in April or May. I think if we had had double or triple the number of contact tracers that that we um, set a goal for in April, we would be in a really different situation right now. That was KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. A large coalition of environmental and outdoor groups are suing the Trump administration in a California federal court. They want to overturn changes the president made to the National Environmental Policy Act. The Trump executive order issued earlier this month says one of the nation's most important environmental laws is being modernized and simplified. Critics disagree, saying the changes mean there will be fewer environmental and public reviews of projects on federal lands. These changes are are so substantial that they really change the fundamental playing field and the legal uh, the legal framework under which federal agencies make decisions. That was Susan Jane Brown, who works for the Western Environmental Law Office. She says the changes weaken environmental reviews and limit public input. We talk about the National Environmental Policy Act uh, as the Magna Carta 
of American environmental law. And it really was, it was a sea change. Uh, it, was, it was promulgated in 1979. And so it had the benefit of the 1960s and the 1970s where we had a growing awareness of the environmental and social justice issues associated with federal actions. The lawsuit has more than 20 plaintiffs, including the Center for Biological Diversity, Earth Justice, and the National Parks Conservation Association. Rent is due tomorrow for thousands of renters in San Diego County, but many have not been able to pay during the coronavirus pandemic. Local and statewide moratoriums have kept a wave of possible evictions on hold for months now, but many are set to expire in the coming weeks. The time for finding a solution for both tenants and landlords is running out. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler has our story. The scale of the crisis is staggering. According to a study by the consulting firm Stout, over 40% of California's renters are currently unable to pay their full rent and are at risk of eviction. In San Diego, with its already elevated rents and lack of affordable housing, the issue looks very much the same. Tenants like Imperial Beach resident Patricia Mendoza suddenly saw their income zeroed out. She's a single mom who was laid off in April and didn't get her first unemployment benefits until June. She hasn't paid her rent in months. It's extremely hard because, like I said, I'm, I'm the only one here. I'm, I'm supposed to keep my children safe. And how am I supposed to do that when, when we're about to get evicted, when these moratoriums lift? She's waiting for some plan to come together to help tenants deal with the months of unpaid rent at a time when there's no sign of an economic recovery and low-income communities are being hit the hardest by the pandemic. Help us. Help us low-income communities. Help our black and brown brothers and sisters because we need this help right now. Who else can we go to? Our elective officials, they're supposed to listen to us. Right now, the region has several overlapping moratoriums placed on possible evictions, but many of them have already expired or are set to expire within weeks. The most pressing date for San Diego residents is now August 14th, when the state's Judicial Council could reopen eviction proceedings across the county in places without an ongoing moratorium. In June, the San Diego City Council committed $15.1 million of federal CARES Act money to create an emergency rental assistance program that would help around 3,500 families pay their rent. But Greg Knoll with the Legal Aid Society of San Diego says that's still not enough. It's, it's going to take government dollars, I believe, whether it's you know, local, city, county, or state dollars uh, to, to help this crisis. It's a crisis that could explode all at once all over us. With unemployment benefits now cut nationwide, San Diego's tenants and landlords have pinned their hopes on Sacramento. Bay Area Assembly member David Chu is the author of Assembly Bill 1436. It would allow renters in financial distress to stretch out their rent payments accrued during the pandemic until April 2022 and possibly beyond. It would also make it so unpaid rent during the pandemic can't be the sole basis for an eviction. We all know that it is completely unreasonable to suggest that if you have been out of work or have seen your income drop dramatically, that come August 14th, you're magically going to have the money to pay any unpaid back rent in the last couple of months. The bill also includes mortgage forbearance provisions for landlords. Last week, a group of landlords held a press conference in support of AB 1436. One of those was San Diego landlord Ginger Hitzka. 
She doesn't want this housing crisis to be a repeat of 2008, where investors were able to move into a distressed housing market, buy foreclosed properties, and drive up rents. I feel like I'm looking at this thing from the perspective as a real estate professional, and it terrifies me because renters, particularly, you know, renters on the on the lower uh, scale of income, you know, they just are in the habit of being in the business of just being people. They're not real estate professionals. But not all landlords are quite on board with the bill. Todd Henderson is a fourth-generation San Diego landlord. He says that without more financial support, bills like AB 1436 could still leave tenants owing an insurmountable amount to landlords. Individuals who really are in, the, in those positions, frankly, are, are probably going to pack up and leave in the middle of the night and leave. And that, and that does happen. We, we have that happen on a somewhat regular basis. With the clock ticking, it's now up to state legislators and Governor Gavin Newsom to craft a response to the looming eviction cliff that many other cities across America are now falling off of. Tenants like Patricia Mendoza are counting on it. When we see Governor Newsom say we're in this together, we just want to be accounted for. Want to be in it together, you know? That's it. That was KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler. And stay with us. Uh, it was called Jesse's Burger Stop or something like that. And they thought, well, we can't have Jesse's Burger Stop. So we've got to buy a new sign. And she said, well, why don't we just name it after you? And, and they called it Roberto's and the rest is history. Dolores Robledo was the matriarch of San Diego's fast food Mexican restaurant, Roberto's. She died earlier this month and was laid to rest on Thursday. We have that story just after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Patriarch behind San Diego's fast food Mexican restaurant chain Roberto's was laid to rest on Thursday. Dolores Robledo died earlier this month at age 90. She worked with her husband Roberto to develop the recipes and locations for one of the nation's first chains of taco shops. Her lifetime of hard work brought success to her family, created an iconic San Diego business, and brought new popularity to Mexican food in California and beyond. KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh spoke with San Diego food writer Mario Cortez and with Pam Cregan, a feature writer at the San Diego Union-Tribune who wrote an obituary on Dolores Robledo. Here's that interview. Pam, tell us more about the life of Dolores Robledo. Uh, well, I spoke with three of her children earlier this week for the obituary that I wrote for the Union-Tribune, and um, they, they all talked about her as a very loving and hardworking mother. She was a mother of 13 children. Um, she and her late husband, uh, Roberto, both grew up in this tiny ranching village in a town called San, San Juan de Salado in the central Mexican state of San Luis Potosi. 
And he came to the United States in 1944 at the age of 14 to, to uh, pick cotton in Texas. And he was an itinerant worker. He worked in the Bracero program in California for a while. And he would go back and forth to visit, uh, visit Dolores in Mexico. And they had seven children by the time she immigrated to, the, to California back in uh, 1957. And uh, they eventually moved to San Diego and uh, opened up a tortilleria, and that was the beginning of their restaurant empire. Yeah, Pam, what did you learn about how Roberto's got started? Well, uh, it, they started out with a tortilleria in San Ysidro. She would get up at the pre-dawn hours and go in and make the tortillas with some of their older children. And then he would drive a delivery route of these tortillas to uh, San Diego Mexican restaurants. And one of the stops that he made was delivering tortillas to the immigrant detention center in Otay Mesa for the U.S. Border Patrol. And the Border Patrol agents would ask him, hey, can you package up some beans and rice and bring those along as well? And they got the idea, well, why don't we open our own Mexican restaurant rather than purchase this material from restaurants? And when one closed on his route, he bought the lease for it. And um, they opened their first Mexican restaurant with family recipes that they had. And they didn't, the first few restaurants, they just kept the names. One of them was called La Lomita. One was a Frosty's restaurant. But when they got to the fifth restaurant, which was in Talmadge area, uh, it was called Jesse's Burger Stop or something like that. And they thought, well, we can't have Jesse's Burger Stop. So like, we've got to buy a new sign. And she said, well, why don't we just name it after you? And, and they called it Roberto's and the rest is history. And the rest is history. Mario, so as a food writer, what do you think made Roberto so popular in San Diego? You got to start with the uh, the lineage of the food that they were offering. It's all high quality ingredients. The, the Robledos did start in distribution. You know, Mrs. Robledo made the uh, tortillas at the beginning. They used their uh, family recipes in their restaurants. They were all well received at the beginning. And um, eventually they started offering this uh, poor man burrito at a very like low price point. And, uh, you know, just through volume, they kind of solidified their presence. And uh, eventually, you know, as the chain evolved, it came to kind of define this San Diego style taco shop. You know, like taco shops aren't quite Tijuana-style taquerias. They're not quite sit-down Mexican food. They're their own genre. Um, you know, they focus on the roll tacos. They focus on the larger burritos. Uh, they have combo plates. And uh, as time went on, you know, like the California burrito emerges and it just kind of sets the standard. It sets the pace for all the other um, San Diego-style taco shops that were to come. And a lot of them were opened by the family members and uh, relatives of the Robledos. Well, according to Reynaldo, who was the youngest son of Roberto, he told me on uh, Monday that as the family's business grew and the number of restaurants grew, he wanted to provide jobs to other people from his uh, state in, in Mexico. And um, each of the children, as they got old enough, got their own restaurant, their own Roberto's. Um, and then one of his cousins came up and he opened a Roberto's, but the cousin started changing the recipes. Um, and Roberto did not feel that that represented the quality of what he thought Roberto's should represent. So he said, you need to change the name if you're gonna change my recipes. The story goes that his cousin didn't have money to change the Roberto sign. So he got a can of red paint and he repainted just the first two letters um, and turned it into an Alberto's. And after that, anyone who came 
to San Diego that was not a family member and was going to open a restaurant, they had to change the name. So that's where the Gilbertos and the Filibertos and the everything else Bertos. And, and uh, what I was told is that there's more than 70 different variations of the Roberto's name. Let me ask you, let me ask you, Mario, specifically about the California burrito, which has become a standard and apparently was um, invented by Roberto's. It's unknown which Roberto's had it first. I've, I've heard that the one in National City had it first, that the one in Talmadge had it first. But in Gustavo Arellano's book, Taco USA, um, the family reveals that they had it before anyone else. It's unknown which cook at which uh, Roberto's location invented it. But around the mid 80s, um, all the locations had it. Uh, uh, Pam, do you have a fond memory of eating at Roberto's? Yes, yes. I, well, I, I grew up mostly in San Diego. My father was in the Navy and we arrived in the early 70s. And, um, you know, when you're a poor college student, you know, you sort of live on Roberto's burritos. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, carne asada burritos are, were my favorite back in the old days and they're still my favorite. And I do think Roberto's quality, just like Mario said, is superb for the price. Mario, do you have a favorite? So I moved here from Tijuana when I was nine, and I remember the first time I saw a Roberto's, um, there was a Roberto's two blocks from where I used to live uh, back in Golden Hill. And I remember walking in, like seeing the big burritos, you know, seeing like their take on uh, rolled tacos, which is a variant of like the Mexican flauta. And uh, it just kind of showed me how different Mexican food can be north of the border while still feeling very familiar. Living uh, north of the border pretty much my whole life ever since. It's just a familiar sight, you know, it, le it, le it lets me know that I am here in San Diego, that I am home, and that, you know, if I'm hungry, I can just stop in and get, you know, carne asada burritos, I can get like some carne asada fries, and some of these San Diego standards that I just, I just love. Uh, Pam, Roberto Robledo died in 1999. So Dolores has been head of this family for quite some time. How is the Robledo family remembering their mother? Well, as you mentioned, uh, there is going to be a Catholic uh, memorial mass for her this afternoon um, in Chula Vista, followed by her burial in uh, Bonita. But what, this, what the children told me is that the way they remember their mother is gathering for big family meals like Christmas and Thanksgiving. So she said that all of the siblings are going to be gathering for a big family events at her home in, in Escondido. And when we say big, we may mean big. She leaves a, a lot of people behind her. That's right. I guess for her 85th birthday, there were more than 200 people gathered for her party. I've been speaking with Pam Cragen from the San Diego Union Tribune and San Diego food writer Mario Cortez. Thank you both so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. Of course, anytime. San Diego News Matters is a daily morning news podcast powered by all of the reporters, editors, and producers in the KPBS newsroom. Tune in to KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or KPBS Evening Edition at 5 p.m. on KPBS Television to keep up with all of the news throughout the day. You can also find us on Twitter at KPBS News or to find our podcast producer, Kinsey Moreland, she's at Kinsey. I'm at Annika Colbert, and as always, you can find more at KPBS podcasts like Only Here and Cinema Junkie on our website at kpbs.org slash podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.